Hello, and welcome to this edition of the FAIR Data Podcast, where we discuss all things FAIR, making data findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. I'm Rory McNeil, host of the FAIR Data Podcast, and my guest today is Esther Pomp. Esther is a data steward at the Faculty of Applied Sciences at the Technical University of Delft, who is also active in various open science initiatives and programs. Esther, welcome. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Great. So you've just done a great blog post describing your journey as a data steward. I can't wait to get to that, but I I do think it's important to make the point that you also earned a PhD that involved research in geology and geochemistry. Can you start by telling us a bit about that? Yeah, of of course. Um, So first of all, my PhD research is not necessarily only focused on geology and geochemistry. Um, I did do it at an earth science department at the Free University of Amsterdam, um, but I'm a little bit of an interdisciplinary researcher where there's no exact box for my, my discipline um, because I'm actually an archaeologist by training. So I studied archaeology at Leiden University, also in the Netherlands. Uh, and from there, I got interested in uh, the more geochemical type of uh, analysis that we do in our discipline to study where people or animals came from, where they were born, um, whether they migrated. Um, and that's something that we can do with techniques that are available in the earth sciences. Uh, so from being a, a very much alpha archeologist, I moved to a very much uh, beta scientific uh, department uh, where I basically studied the, the human provenancing. Uh, so, um, what I did on a daily basis was basically destroy some teeth from humans, uh, study the chemical composition, and based on the numbers uh, that the mass spectrometers uh, push out, then you can say something whether people grew up in the same location that uh, they died in, in archaeological cases. Uh, but I actually analyze modern materials. Uh, so these people were very much still alive, luckily, when we received the materials. Um, so these were wisdom teeth from people that had them extracted because of complications or um, that's nowadays quite a normal practice to remove your wisdom teeth before there are any problems. Uh, and so that's actually quite nice material for me to um, just basically test some analysis on because in general, people don't consider that um, as an important tissue or people don't want to necessarily keep their teeth. So um, these modern teeth were Uh, like a great test case scenario for my PhD research where I tried to test and develop some new methods. Uh, And so it didn't matter if I destroyed an entire wisdom teeth because uh, it was not part of an important archaeological collection that was very important for our national heritage. So that felt quite safe to experiment on some modern teeth. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm an archaeologist, uh, not really a geologist, but more of an isotope uh, archaeologist. Well, wow, that's really interesting. I tell you, there's a there's an odd little thing which just just uh, occurred to me. But uh, you mentioned provenance and 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 looking at at people's individuals' history, and so you didn't describe yourself as a as a historian, but history was part of definitely part of what you were doing. And and uh, on a on a podcast which is focused on data. I've been shocked, I'd say, fully half of the people that have come on the podcast, as well as me, as it happens, uh, studied history in one form or another. They, they weren't necessarily, some of them weren't necessarily even, even scientists to start with. So, so maybe there's a link between the mysteries of history and the mysteries of data. I don't know. But, uh. 
I, I think it's systemically embedded in, in everything that we do because it, we derive from that history and, and all of our analysis and, and institutes also are embedded in this historical situation. So I think actually um, his, historians or, or social scientists are a lot better in, in these types of realizations than sometimes, um, well, STEM uh, scientists, but what we call more diehard scientists, um, because we, we seem to think sometimes that numbers are very objective and the only thing that matters or, or that they're, that these are somehow facts. But yeah, you could argue that they're all um, generated in a specific context and you, you have some input in what type of research questions you address and how you actually collect that data, etc. So are the end results really just objective facts? And these are interesting questions that I sometimes have to deal with. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, actually picking up on that point, if I have the timeline right, you started down the data steward path actually at the same time as you were completing or you're already heavily involved in your PhD. So was it the case that the research that the research you were doing on the PhD stimulated your interest in in data and data management? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's the part of my PhD where I did method development uh, primarily drove that because um, so I just explained that I was analyzing teeth and basically trying to develop new methods uh, on for these types of analysis, um, and that can be very frustrating in the sense uh, that method development is not a straightforward path. Uh, you, you, yeah, you it's research, so you won't get to the end result immediately if you try to develop something new. Um, and eventually we got it to work. And then I published in uh, a type of journal or a type of article where they really allowed me to dive into all the details of the methods. So I could fully describe all the steps that I took and all the protocols that I used. And I was quite happy with the work because I, I, I am not 100% sure if someone could fully reproduce that work, but at least I tried to give uh, as much as the details uh, as I possibly could. And then uh, we had a follow-up uh, article on that using the same technique, but the article was two years later. And I did do some minor modifications to the protocol so that it would work faster or more efficiently. And there was not really a space in this article to actually describe these modifications. Um, so you get to this uh, excruciating sentence where people say like, we analyze the samples just like such and such. Um, so please look at that article. And then when you look at the article, um, of course, I have this very extensive method article, which you can find. But there, yeah, if I modified anything, I don't have a space to actually explain that somewhere in detail. So I, that's where I got a bit frustrated about how we are handling scientific communications. Um, and at some point I did find out that there was an, an option to share my methods uh, in more detail. And I uh, found protocols.io, which was actually my first open science step where I shared one of the protocols uh, that I published on. And I managed to get all the nitty gritty details in there, even more detailed than in the first article, uh, but also the modifications. And I think that is very helpful. Um, but it's not something that was encouraged uh, that I should do that because not everyone was aware in my discipline. And also there's not a lot of uh, recognition for people who do these types of things. So it's basically sort of a hobby of me trying to get this method out as detailed as possibly uh, as possible so that someone else could 
retake my steps. Um, but I am not necessarily rewarded in the sense that I could not use that as a separate chapter in my thesis. Uh, and I think that's something that has also been discussed earlier in the podcast uh, by Ralitza Madden, I think. Uh, where, Yeah, Madsen. Uh, yeah, she also discussed that if you don't reward this type of sharing of data and materials, what will when will people actually do that? Uh, we do have a lot of other things to do. Uh, so it shouldn't just be a hobby that you, you only do when you're very enthusiastic about it or when you find it very important. And uh, that's where I got a little bit frustrated about uh, doing data science. And I started to increasingly look at vacancies for data stewards and people involved in open science. And so that's how I got to my current position. Okay, that's, yeah. So there's a very direct and uh, logical and uh, and actually powerful uh, link between um, between what you are doing in your your PhD research and then what you're what you're obviously carrying over in a very I think a very creative way into the the data stewardship. So really very much on that theme. So I mean TU Delft is is pioneering many aspects of research data management and open science, and that includes data stewardship. Uh, to me, one of the most interesting areas is data stewardship, and one innovation that um, that I I believe you're you're doing at, at TU Delft. I know it's happening elsewhere too, but uh, is having data stewards with particular domain expertise working with research groups in that domain. So, how did that come about at TU Delft, and and how would you say it's working? Yeah, before I go into that, maybe it's it's easier to first maybe describe what it is that I'm doing as a data steward. Yeah, great. Um, because I think there might be some confusion about what a data steward is. And, and sometimes um, we have different definitions of it. So what I do as a data steward at the Delft University of Technology is basically being an advisor to all the researchers of my faculty um, about anything data, code, software management, open science. Um, so I am not necessarily directly involved in handling any of their data. So sometimes I, I can provide them with some tips, uh, but I don't necessarily manage their data for them, which is a position which I would um, described more as a data manager instead of a data steward. But I realized that some of the data stewards are indeed directly involved with uh, analyzing and managing people's data. Um, so I don't necessarily do that for my faculty. Uh, and also not all of the data stewards have an exact match in the background of the researchers that they're helping. Uh, so for me, that would be especially complicating uh, because my faculty is quite large and we have very different departments. So we have a chemical engineering department uh, and a quantum nanoscience department and then their science communication. And all these departments have very different expertise and, and needs. So I, it's literally not possible for me to be uh, an expert in everyone's background there. And I don't think that's needed for my role because I'm, I'm only advising. Um, but it's, um, of course, more helpful uh, if people actually have uh, a domain expert that is more 
familiar with the specific issues that they're dealing with. Um, so that's why at TU Delft, we don't only have these data stewards that are more of an advisory position at e each of the faculties, but we also have data champions. And uh, this is an initiative that we adopted from Cambridge. So TU Delft did not come up with this ourselves. We're completely reusing their initiative. Um, and these data champions are experts in their own fields. Uh, so they're researchers at the departments. It could also be technicians. Uh, we have a couple of people from IT and from the library. Uh, and basically anyone who wants to be a data champion is welcome. Um, but these are really experts uh, that can answer questions from researchers within, for example, their own department. Uh, and that's just to add that that doesn't necessarily mean that they always have the answer or that they are the experts that this researcher needs, because even within an own department, there are several subfields and, and departments are huge. Um, but it is a great start and it would be even better if we have really data managers or technicians or really experts that are embedded in each of the research groups and that are more hands-on um, dealing with the data and having that really field, well, research group specific expertise that is really needed to handle the data. And I know that's the case for some of the groups uh, that are present at my faculty, but certainly not all of them, because it's, it's quite difficult to embed these roles in a research group. Um, and that's also quite related to, for example, the research software engineers uh, that I think James Hedrington discussed in the podcast. So these are really more hands-on specific working on a project. Um, and I think we really do need a lot more of these types of people, um, but then it's diff difficult to attract these types of people because you need to have the domain specific backgrounds. And how do you provide a career for a research software engineer uh, at the university? So all of these things are still in development. Yeah. So there's a bunch of really interesting points there in, in those, uh, in that, in that bit of, uh, uh, of of your conversation. So, yeah. So, so as you say, I think James Hetherington at, at university college London has this interesting notion of, of, uh, it's a, it's kind of a double innovation. And one is, is throwing the research computing or the it people together with the research services people and having them work alongside each other, uh, and that, and historically that's often been a, a major gap. Uh, where that hasn't happened very well. And then the other is, which is equally, if not even more innovative, is having people doing research on on research software, developing new, uh, from, from kind of an academic perspective, um, also be involved with um, with the, the provision of, of services. So it'll be interesting to see how how that uh, develops. And I, I know actually through other conversations I've, I've had with James that that they're planning to um, something that perhaps haven't had so much as much of at UCL is uh, is data stewards, and they're planning to significantly increase the number of, of data stewards. So that will be that will be thrown into that mix as well. So that's an interesting uh, an interesting experiment. There's lots of interesting stuff happening, and then I know at some other universities in in let's say Holland and and Germany, I've seen cases where there are particular um, particular grants, particular projects. Uh, have actually funded um, uh, a domain, a kind of a do, domain data steward. 
as a full-time uh, person within within the project. So they're there, uh, even from the, in, in a way, they're there before the project starts in terms of the grant and, and thinking about it. Uh, so that's project-based as opposed to, let's say, department-based or, or ongoing. So, yeah, so all these things are 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 kind of bubbling away. It's going to be interesting to, to see how they develop. So on this coming, you know, coming back to the fundamental point you just made, I think you've actually made it twice in various forms about, about attribution and reward and career path. So I noticed that you're, I think it was just very recently, your, your colleague, Marta Teprick, along with Maria Cruz and Danny Kingsley published a nature article calling for an, um, in effect, calling for an end to the divide between research professionals and research support staff, at least in, in some cases. So I guess these, these, um, uh, these, this move towards uh, gradually having more, more, more active data stewardship uh, is could be seen as a step in that direction. Uh, do you think? Do you think that's right? What are your What are your thoughts on on uh, on this? I am very much in support of the article that they uh, shared on uh, calling uh, for the end between this very sharp divide that we see between research professional um, and the researchers at the institutes. Um, but at this point, I don't think we're at TU Delft in the luxurious position of, of being across that, so to say. That's also why they published it, of course, uh, to increase awareness for these types of issues. And I do think that this is an issue uh, from the support staff point of view. Um, for example, I am very much involved with anything data management, but then I can't apply for a grant from the Dutch funder as a lead applicant on a topic that is exactly my expertise, for example, data management, open science. Um, but I can't apply as a lead applicant because I'm not considered a researcher. I My job description says I'm support staff and I am support staff, but that doesn't mean I could not lead a research project, for example. But because we have these very sharp definitions or categories at at least at Dutch universities, I am being put in a box where you're not allowed to do any funding applications unless my job description changes. And um, I uh, discussed this in detail, actually, or a little bit more in detail, sharing my experiences around this uh, in a fireside chat, which was organized by the Turing Way. Uh, and the Turing Way is a handbook, but also a community for reproducible and ethical data research. And they organize these types of uh, fireside chats, which are online events where they focus on a particular topic. Uh, and try to get the community together to discuss this. Uh, and this particular fireside chat was called Emergent Roles in Research Infrastructure and Technology. Uh, and there I discuss a little bit more about what the process was and, and how I felt about that. And um, basically the consequences of what do we actually call research? Because that is, I think, the, the essence of the discussion here. When are you a researcher and when are you not? And where is that? Where does that boundary end? And I think we we now have this very sharp boundary or divide, and I don't think that's how research works. Um, and we have this very focus on on publications as an as a measurement of output of researchers, but there are a lot of other um, 
efforts that are going on that support that process that are just as important uh, because without all of that nothing would actually run so that could be the data management uh, data collection it could be organizing conferences events to get people together to communicate uh, science communication is another important thing public engagements etc um, which is why i think it's important that uh, they publish this article uh, because i've I think people need to become more aware that if we increasingly hire people like data managers, research software engineers with a research background, but we sort of tell them that they're not really researchers anymore, but they do have to contribute to the research process, then you're not fully engaged with these types of research professionals. And yeah, I, I don't think we're going to be in a good place in five years if we continue to have this sharp divide. I think we need some more uh, blurring of boundaries or, as I said in the fireside chat, removing of the boxes. Yeah. So how do you see that? How do you see that? How, how would you see that process? I mean, what are the key? As you say, funding is, is critical, but in a way, funding is, is, is uh, changes in funding structures only come about after you get uh, pressure and you get and you get kind of bottom up, um, both, both pressure of ideas, as well as pressure of, of advocacy uh, to make these changes. So I guess the, I mean, what are the sources of, uh, of input into the funders that would, that would help to accelerate this process? Like some of it has to come from the, from the institutions, I suppose, and, and maybe would some come from, um, from, from communities like Turing Way, and some would come from associations of, uh, of, uh, of groups like data stewards, I guess it would be a combination of these things, or do you see anything that's particularly uh, important? No, absolutely. I think uh, involving all these types of communities is important in the discussions. And for example, at uh, in the Netherlands, we already have this discussion going on, uh, which is, um, oh, I forgot the name now, but it's, um, it's, it's a rewards and recognition movement. Oh, Room for Everyone's Talents. Um, so this is a, a reform of the rewarding researchers, um, and that's great. And I think it's it's very much needed. We need to not expect researchers to only publish high impact factor journal papers, and also focus on all of their other tasks that they're doing, such as education, um, is a, a really good focus um, w which they're going for. But then they completely forget uh, that there's other roles outside of like the 100% the full-time researcher and it's it's not even mentioned so the only uh, university that mentions support staff in their rewards and recognition uh, re um, discussions was uh, Utrecht University and basically what they said was that we recognize that this is also an important conversation but we're not going to have it now yeah, and so uh, so people do recognize that this is a conversation that we need to have, uh, and I am not patient enough to wait another five years so that now we can have our discussion after we've done the rewards and recognition uh, redo redoing for researchers. So this is why I think pushing from multiple types of communities is crucial. Okay, great, great, great. And I'll definitely, thanks, I, I wasn't aware of your fireside chat, but I'll definitely, I'll definitely... Um definitely look it up and listen. Um, so in slightly changing the, the focus, uh, in, in, your, in your blog post, you talk about being a, a connection point 
with other parts of the university that are involved in research data management. Could you highlight what you see as some of the, the main connections that you're involved in and, and the benefits they bring? Yeah, I think there's there's two type of connections that are very important there. And one of them is that I am uh, I'm working in a data stewards team. So across all of the faculties and institutes that we have, we work together in a team of uh, 10 people now. And that makes it very easy to connect researchers from our own faculty to researchers from another faculty. And that sounds very easy and straightforward, but that is actually not something that is taking place a lot at, at Dutch universities. In general, um, people are really organized within their own faculty or institute, and that's it. And then people are not really looking if, if they're already involved in faculty processes, that is already uh, quite a stretch. So people are just very much focused on their own research group. Uh, so you're very much not aware of everything else that is going on. And so the help or the, the benefit of having data stewards that are uh, crossing these faculties in, in our team uh, is that I can just easily ask a colleague, um, are you familiar with any researchers that are focusing on this specific problem? And they'll go like, oh, sure, there's this group. And then I can forward contact details or forward a direct question. And then researchers from my faculty do not have to reinvent the wheel and spend a lot of time in, on something uh, when the answer is literally just across uh, their building. Uh, so that saves a lot of time and I think it also provides some valuable connections across the campus where people can feel supported in the work that they do because there's other people that do similar uh, types of research but just slightly different. And another thing that um, we do as data stewards as a connecting point is also um, try to address all of the questions that researchers have. So we're sort of uh, like a a general practitioner where you can get go to with all the questions that you have and in the end it doesn't really matter whether I'm the right contact point for you but I'll get you to the to the contact point that you need to be um, so that helps to find solutions and for people to not just have to deal with their own problems for months uh, and because i'm very well connected in that network across the campus we can actually uh, usually get an answer within a week uh, on a question instead of things lingering on for months and there's also the um, the broader opportunity to really collaborate across the campus uh, and so for example there's several initiatives that have resulted out of um, interactions with data stewards and researchers and then connecting them to the, the library, for example. Uh, one of my examples would be that we have a BioRender pilot now uh, running at the university. So BioRender is a, a program to create uh, scientific images, illustrations for publications, presentations. And we had some researchers that requested this. Uh, because images are very important, but obviously not everyone can draw very well. So it would be great to have this program available. And so I connected researchers from several faculties uh, to the library, and that allowed us to start a small pilot with this program. And so that's a, a really nice opportunity for the faculties or the data stewards and researchers to work together with the library or the central level and really meet these requirements, which otherwise would have just be stuck in the air, sort of like, well, it would be great to have an illustration program. Okay, great. So now I have to pay for my own license. 
which is a solution. But if we have a lot of people that are requiring the same programs or, or have the same requirements, we might as well fix it at the university or faculty level. Yeah, fantastic. I, I, had, I was kind of interested when I was just running through, I came across an interesting, these, con these connections are, of course, critical. Uh, I, I came across an interesting example of that a few years ago when I was living in in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and this, this the Swiss are uh, they have a very interesting model for their 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 consulates, and their their consulates are actually um, connection machines, and they're heavily focused on on research, on research and innovation. That's what they are focused on, and so the Swiss consulate in Cambridge, they have a particular person. And his, their, their full-time job is to help facilitate connections between researchers at Harvard and Swiss universities, which when, when I first heard, I said, that's kind of ridiculous. Of course, researchers, you know, if they're in the same field, they'll, they'll already know each other. They won't need this. So it's kind of a, a, you know, a, a, a research concierge. And yet it was extremely useful and led to a number of connections. So the kind of uh, your ability to make those connections is, 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 uh, is definitely adding value. And the example you gave of the biorenders is really interesting, but uh, yeah. So you're also active in, 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 in other open science activities outside the university. You mentioned the Turing Way, and I think you're also involved in the Carpentries. So how do, I'm sure it takes time and, and, and you're already really busy, but do you think these activities help to inform and, and complement the work you're doing at the university? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I have learned so much from these communities. Uh, so I started with the Carpentries, which is a community around teaching basic programming skills. Uh, and this was really essential for picking up uh, anything related to software management support, which I, I found out was quite crucial for my faculty. So I needed to learn this. Um, and also the Turing Way is, is a really great community um, to learn more about reproducible data science, which is actually the, the end goal uh, of, of my position of supporting other people in, in trying to have more ethical um, re reproducible data science. So these goals or, and the values are very connected to the work that I'm doing. Um, and um, I think that they're also very... I learn a lot from the people that are involved in these types of communities. So similar what uh, Sarah L. Gabali also mentioned, uh, we do exchange practices a lot. And some of the work that I'm doing would not be possible uh, if not for these types of communities. And um, I did not start out as doing the Turing Way activities uh, during my job because I first figured this is a separate thing. I do not necessarily help out my researchers when participating in the Turing Way, um, but I did discuss this with my manager and then uh, she was like, well, this is actually part of your work. So why not uh, use do this as a work hour activity? Uh, so I received support from my manager and I can also say that a lot of the work that I do for the Turing Way is also directly beneficial to my own role. Uh, so, for example, if a researcher is asking, how do I share my data during peer review? Uh, I can write out a very detailed email, for example, just for that researcher. But if I contribute a chapter to the Turing Way, uh, I also get feedback from other colleagues uh, on the advice that I give. Uh, it's, it's really peer reviewed in a sense. Uh, we have a lot more expertise looking at it. My advice is a lot more solid. 
And then when it's available on the Turing way, the next time that someone will ask this question and that will happen, I can just refer them to this section on the Turing way. Like if you want more information, then you can look here uh, or of course call me. Uh, but some people prefer to just read an email or read a text. Uh, and so then I directly save myself another 30 uh, minutes or an hour of my time by basically pointing people out to an existing resource, which is a lot more valuable because of all, the, all of the expertise that has been involved in writing this rather than just my own. Yeah, oh, that's, that's really interesting and, uh, and, uh, and positive. Uh, so kind of at the last couple of uh, last part of the, the discussion, let's, let's in a way uh, turn back uh, or bring in some of the the earlier themes that were coming in when you were describing your uh, the work you did on on your PhD. So I, I know that in, in addition to or, or, or no doubt as part of your your data stewardship, you've taken a particular interest in in verification of sample data, and I guess that probably does stem from your PhD work where you dealt with sample identification, collection, analysis, and uh, and preservation or destruction, as you were saying, of the uh, of the ones from uh, th that aren't uh, thousands of years old. So, so tell us a bit about your involvement in, uh, again, other groups uh, like ESIP and the RDA Physical Sample Group, and how does that, uh, how does that play into your thinking about, about more broadly verification of, of data? Yeah, thanks for, for highlighting that I'm actually the worst person to talk about sample preservation because I indeed completely destroyed my own sample. So I'm, I'm a terrible person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, this this definitely stems from my uh, from my background, especially my archaeological background, where uh, samples and artifacts are really the primary thing that we focus on. So it, it's quite strange that we sometimes forget that sample management is also a thing, and without it, much of the research is not even possible. Uh, so I grew a little bit frustrated, I guess, uh, over uh, the months after I started as a data steward, uh, because you see that happening in, in any any of the research data management discussions, people focus very much on the digital outputs. And that's understandable because that is easier to share digitally and to keep track of. Um, but physical samples are important, uh, important parts of research for some of our disciplines, not all of the disciplines, of course, but uh, it is relevant for mine. Uh, so when I joined the Research Data Alliance Plenary in Helsinki in 2019, uh, I figured out that there was this group focusing on physical samples, basically making the same arguments that I uh, had. And I, I was just so excited that there was this group that, that was already discussing these issues. Um, but I wasn't aware of it. And so I, I was really looking um, for how can we increase awareness of these types of initiatives. Uh, and because I was still finishing up my PhD, I, I actually didn't have the time to become more involved at the very start of that. Um, but uh, over the last year, I've become one of the co-chairs of the group. So that means I'm, I'm more organizing uh, these types of group discussions, which are really uh, focused on interdisciplinary connections and addressing these types of issues for how do you manage physical samples? How do you share it? How do we increase recognition for people that do sample management, etc.? And so last year, um, I managed to co-organize sessions and a webinar series, which you were also part of. And so thanks for very much for uh, being a part of that, uh, for, with uh, talking about our space and, and how do you manage samples digitally. 
Um, and we are also working, for example, on just a, a handout with some sources of information about physical samples, because we, we noticed that people just generally don't know where to look for more information about these types of uh, resources or repositories uh, or physical identifiers. So we're trying to make it easier to access this type of information and to get researchers connected to these types of initiatives because they are around, um, just not very much into your face. Uh, and, and what you're saying, it's it's actually quite difficult to get researchers connected to these types of initiatives because they're, they're hiding in their research groups and in the labs. Uh, and it's, it, Roles like community managers are actually really important uh, to get people out of their own silos and to get them connected uh, and to really drive forward new initiatives and new solutions that um, are more applicable to just their own discipline. Yeah, so interesting. I mean, so from, from your comments, and I think it's generally my, my experience as well, the, the uh, uh, sample sample data management, sample data provenance, verification of sample data, it definitely seems like it's, it's starting, uh, you know, from a lower base than let's say, uh, digitization and verification of, of, of other forms of, of research data, which as you say, often can be more easily digitized or, or already digital to begin with. Uh, but, but the things that you're doing, um, are examples of, of, of the fact that uh, this the conversation about fear is beginning to to uh, seep into the the sample area as well. So given that things are a little bit, and also then you you've got the the each domain has its own has its own um, you know its own requirements and its own challenges. So given that that we are where we are, um, how would you how would you think uh, what advances do you think in terms of Kind of verification of sample data. What do you what advances? What's the low hanging fruit? What advances do you think are are achievable in say the near future, like the next two to three years? Yeah, that's a great question, and I'm I'm just going to tie that back to indeed for fair data. We're we're also not already there, as in it's it's still even for digital outputs, it's still quite difficult to track them uh, to keep uh, to cite uh, digital outputs other than publications. Uh, and to have them really embedded in the rewards and recognition processes. And so if we're not there for fair, for fair data, I think for fair sample data, we're, we're still a little bit further behind. Um, but we can, of course, uh, piggyback on the initiatives that are already existing. And uh, I must say that we do. Um, so I, I hope within the next couple of years, we have uh, a lot more awareness for these types of resources. Uh, so hopefully I'll get the 23 things physical samples out soon so that we can spread the word about uh, all of the resources that we already have. Uh, and I'm also hoping that we'll see um, a more normalization of also citing samples and not just data sets. Uh, and so that's an initiative which uh, Sarah Ramdeen is uh, coordinating uh, with the ESIP group. Uh, so I'm very much looking forward to her work on and the group's work on that. Um, and also work that Chris Erdmann has done for the Earth Sciences. And, and I think Chris was also on one of the podcast episodes. Um, they really did a great job in the earth sciences to provide people with information about how to share samples, how to cite things. Um, so 
we can really adapt that also for physical samples. Uh, and yeah, I basically hope that we see some more normalization of discussing samples and citing samples, and that we see some more recognition for these types of processes in research, which I think is a critical aspect of research, the, the data collection, data management, uh, field research, etc. cetera. Uh, and I hope that we can see some more recognition for these types of efforts within the next couple of years. Fantastic. Okay, well, I think that's probably a a good point to uh, to wind up on. It brings together several of the themes that, which have, have been uh, flowing through this conversation. So, so Esther, thank you so much. This is this has been a it's been an inspiring conversation. Thanks so much for inviting me and for your thoughtful questions. <laughs> a pleasure. Okay, folks. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. The Fair Data Podcast is provided by FairDatapodcast.org and produced by Meroz Ahmed. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, and follow us on Twitter at Fairdata Podcast. New episodes are released every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. UK, and 5 p.m. Central European time. See you next week.